0: I'm Bob Dickey and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is Richard Heichel, or as his friends call him, Richie. He's the chairman of Heichel Hospital SAL in Tripoli, Lebanon, and the executive director of Cara Ventures, LLC. Richie has a Bachelor of Arts in Economics from Tufts University and a Masters of Hospital and Healthcare Administration and Management from the University of Paris. He is also a graduate of the Harvard Business School Executive Program and a graduate of the Harvard Business School Owner President Managers Program. Richie is a member of the Young President's Organization, YPO, and is home based in Tripoli, Lebanon. Richie is a classmate of mine and a close friend. He's a man that lives life passionately, loves his friends and family deeply, and has an insatiable desire to learn and grow as a human being. He's also one of the most kind and generous souls I've ever met. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, so let's jump right in. Well, Richie, thank you for taking time to be with us today. I know you're dialing in from Lebanon, you know, halfway across the world, and uh, there may be some uh, technical difficulties from time to time as we have this conversation, but we're uh, hopeful that everything is going to continue to work well. But we know you are a very busy man running many businesses and doing very important things there in the middle east i appreciate you taking time to be with us today
1: bob thank you for the opportunity first uh, it's it's both a privilege and an honor to be with you on the on the podcast Uh, i've served with you before at harvard and you've always been an exemplary leader somebody we love to to take as a higher example and follow so thank you for giving me that that honor and that privilege
0: uh, well, thank you for those kind words. I tell you, you know, anytime I get together with you, whether it's in uh, Boston or other places around the world where we may have uh, met with YPO events, anytime we've had a chance to sit down and, and talk over dinner, I've always been fascinated by your insight uh, and perspective of what's going on in the world. I mean, even though you are uh, a, a proud um, member of, of Lebanon and, and live there in Lebanon, you travel all over the world, you're a global citizen. And I've always really appreciated your perspective. And one of the things that I, I, I feel that we don't get here in the West is a lot of great reporting on really what's going on uh, in the Middle East. And I'd love to take this opportunity for you to share with our listeners, and we have a global audience, but just your perspective and insights of what of what's happening. There's been so much that's going on in the news right now. But I, I think for us to get a A really good insight. Maybe we need to travel back in time back to October of 2019. There was a really important revolution that took place. I believe it's called the WhatsApp revolution. How did that set the stage for everything that's happening right now? Can you give us a little context or what what you saw?
1: Great question. Thank you for the question. Uh, You have to understand Lebanon has always been at the crossroads between East and West. It's one of the few countries that has you know, uh, multi-sectarian mix. We have uh, Christians, Muslims, and at a certain time we had a lot of Jews. Uh, sadly, that's that's changed uh, as of late. But since it has always had that that you know multi-ethnic, multi-sectarian mix, it's always played a role much bigger than its geography. You know, it's a small country. It's ten thousand square kilometers. It's nothing major. But there's no civilization in the Middle East that hasn't passed. Through Lebanon with its armies and not left a mark. There's a certain, there's a place when you come to visit, I'll take you to it, where all the armies would put how many soldiers passed by and how long they stayed for. The Syrians were occupying Lebanon until, until around 2005 when they had to leave. Uh, sadly, um, Lebanon's always been ruled by feudal warlords. Now these feudal warlords have always had different excuses and different parties and different types, types of labels to, to, to give themselves. But basically, they're, you know, they've been profiting from the system that's existed. Lebanese are very culturally rich, and their education goes back all the way to the 18th century and 17th century. We had colleges and universities all the way back then. And so that's why whenever you go anywhere around the world, you'll find the Lebanese in a university or in a hospital or in any any sort of um, high position in most of the countries. The first Chinese person to be given a residency was the doctor of Mao was a, China, a Lebanese doctor. Wow. I mean, just to give you, you, know, scale. The guy who invented the American Express card was Lebanese. The guy who invented the Swatch was Lebanese. As of late, you know, Carlos Ghosn, who was the CEO of three Fortune 500 companies, was Lebanese. The Debarry, the guy who invented the Jarvik card, was Lebanese, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's amazing how rich we are culturally. And what happens is that this country was always living off of the remittances that were coming from that diaspora Mm -hmm. that had developed, that had taken on leadership. Um, Feudal warlords were basically corrupt individuals uh, using the government and the state institutions to further their wealth and entrenched their families into a business. They looked at politics as a business. They didn't look to politics as a service for for human beings. Not like in the West where you have checks and balances and people are held accountable. Here is the wild, wild West, right? And uh, Lebanon had been the battleground for all these Middle Eastern countries for a very long time. So whenever Saudi Arabia and Iran would go at it, it would be Lebanon that would be having the headache. They never had the problems on their own territories. That changed with the Arab Spring. So I'm sorry, I'm giving you a bit of context. I know I'm being a bit long, but it's...
0: No, this is perfect. This is what I want you to do. Take as much time as you need.
1: You no, know, it's a bit complicated. There are multi-layers. There are sectarian layers, there are regional layers, there are ethnic layers, and there are superpowers and fuel and energy. And it just gets very complicated. And then you had Israel in 1948, which didn't make it any simpler for everybody that's involved. So um, basically what happened is that as of... The spring of the Arab Spring, these countries started having movements. And I think it's no coincidence that you had that go on with the internet. You know, the internet with the information flowing freely and quickly to everybody's handheld, you know, phone mm-hmm. became a, a huge tool and it opened up the eyes to many, of many people to how life is in the West. And so you had these autocratic kleptocracies, dictatorships that always never represented the people by suffrage and vote. The votes were always rigged. You you, you had people who voted 99.9% of the vote. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, these people figured out that there's a better life somewhere. And you had the advent of the Arab Spring. Sadly, the Arab Spring was hijacked by, you know, these, these regimes are entrenched, and they've been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and they have their ways of manipulating the outcome. So in Lebanon in 2019, when... The government placed the WhatsApp tax, I think it was the equivalent of $6 at the time. It was a very big revolution. Everybody went to the streets, irrelevant of their sect or their ethnicity or their party allegiance. And that was a big shock to the establishment, which had ruled levy.
0: Just so I understand that they, they put a tax on the use of WhatsApp. This was a free service that was free to them at that, up to that point, but then it was like, hey, we're going to charge you $6 a month. And that, that's a substantial fee, right? And this is the, the, exactly. the, the number one form of communication. I mean, even this morning when you and I were coordinating for this podcast, you and I were using WhatsApp. So this is, uh, but here in the United States, there's a lot of people who might not use this on a regular basis. But I mean, I, I assume this is like your, this is email, text message, phone call, video call, all rolled in one. This is the, the number one form of communication. Am I correct?
1: You're absolutely right. This is the number one form of communication worldwide. In the States, you guys have, many different bundles that you get from your providers. So you have FaceTime and you have other other types of communications. But if you go outside of America, WhatsApp is basically the go-to application for everything and anything that has to do. You make groups with the families, you send pictures, you send videos, yeah. you call, you text, you message, you send files, PDFs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, perhaps in China, they have uh, WeChat. Mm-hmm. They have other other, other other types of apps. Uh, but. So they came and they said one of the sectors that the Lebanese government was milking for fresh dollars was the communication sector. It was one of their it was one of their honeypots, mm-hmm. and they saw that if they increased the income on that honeypot, that they would be able to you know further kick the can down the road from an economic meltdown. And when the revolution happened because of the six dollar tax, the whole financial sector melted down. The uh, banks are closed. I mean, they're actually open, but they act as exchanges, as mm-hmm. cambios, as a place where you can go and get dollars for euros or dollars for different currencies. Mm-hmm. I can send you money like a Venmo style from one exchange to another using the banks. But banks as we know them, financial institutions that lend mm-hmm. money to the, the private sector and to the you know, people and the depositors in order to buy houses, cars, etc., just imploded from one night to the other. And that led the Lebanese government to default on its euro bonds, on its euro bond obligations. So we're talking about roughly, we had $170 billion worth of deposits in the banks. The central bank came up and said all they have left is $33.3 billion. Um, There's no way that they can, you know, honor their obligations towards the West, whether it's to the euro bonds or to the, you know, treasury bonds, treasury bonds that were issued by the central bank. Mm-hmm. The central bank imploded. And so you have a country that's today basically run on the cash, cash accounting basis. There's no such thing as a financial sector as you know it. If you want to transfer, if I need to transfer you $100, I need to actually take a physical $100 bill, put it in the bank, and they will transfer it to you via OMT, Western Union, or whatever, whatever that kind of, or to your bank account, if the correspondent bank, which is in America, accepts to do it. So that's, that's one huge issue. The other big issue that happens, this happened just before the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, and then we got the COVID pandemic, and you can imagine what it wreaked in, in terms of economic uh, havoc the
0: country as well. Can I, can I uh, pause right there just so people understand like what's, how these finan- this financial crisis is impacting people on the streets? I mean, as of this morning when I was doing some you know, research and just looking at the latest news articles that were coming out about uh, what Beirut or Tripoli or various places there within Lebanon, there was a, an Irish Times article that had been written uh, and got some coverage w- within the EU and it was quoting, and so I'd love, like for you to you know, tell me if this is accurate, but upwards of 80% of the population now in Lebanon is in poverty. There have uh, been run on banks. There, this, was, this was written within the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, riots in the streets, people trying to withdraw their money from the banks. They're not allowed to. So th- these are th- you know, images that a lot of times people don't see, especially here within the United States. You don't have these types of images of you know downtown Chicago or New York or L.A. run on banks, but this is what this is how it's impacting uh, the population there uh, in a very very negative way, right? Very di- make, it's making it very difficult for the average person to be able to live and conduct business and to just be able to do life.
1: So you're, everything they mentioned in the article is absolutely correct. I'll give you a few slight examples. So, if you had your life savings, let's say $100,000 that were saved up in the bank from your life earnings, you had retired,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you would go to the bank and the bank would say, Well, I'll give you $200 a month. You can't withdraw anything more than that. The, the whole system just fell apart completely. And what's really interesting, if you want, I'll send you an article in the New York Times, a video that was made by the New York Times just about a week ago, yeah. is that certain people actually went to hold up banks to get their deposits to pay for their ailing family members that were dying. Hmm. They weren't being able to pay for their hospital bills Hmm. because, you know, they had that money in the bank, but the bank gave them no access to the funds and they needed to pay the bills and the bills are in currency because, you know, that's... So, I mean, I'll I'll send you a couple of articles and videos that will give you some context in that respect, but you're absolutely correct. From one day to another, you went from having a bank account with a credit card to having nothing. Nothing at all, and 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 it was completely wiped out in a day. And what you said about the poverty, poverty in Lebanon prior to 2019 was in the 24, 22 percent range. Overnight, it went up to 80 percent. Wow. You just wipe the middle class, you wipe them off, and even even the rich people. even even if you have 10 million dollars in the bank account, and I know lots of friends that were living in the states that are that are from Lebanese uh, origins that have transferred money here because. The government prior to that was offering very high interest rates, 10% and 15% interest rates. A dear friend of mine, I'll I'll abstain from naming, who had lived for 35 years in Seattle, has life savings of $35 million. He put him in the bank here because he was getting 10% interest, greed, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. but uh, it has to be said, overnight he couldn't access any any of it. Today, the going rate for a dollar, we call it a, a dollar in the bank, is called a dollar. It's an imaginary dollar. Huh. So, if I were to give you a check for a million dollars today, today that's worth on the market $100,000. So, I'll give you a check for a for million dollars, you'll give me $100,000 in cash. So, this guy had 35 million wiped out to thirty-three point five million in a question of days, in a fortnight, was gone. And not only was it gone, he has no access to it. He can't do anything to it. He has to go to the black market and exchange a check for cash. And then he has to see how he has to figure getting the cash out of the country. Because, you know, today with all the international laws and all the money laundering, terrorism money, it's really hard to to, to move that kind of money around. And And it's really sad because Lebanon was, you know, one of the few countries that had a very powerful middle class. And you can see the middle class has completely been obliterated, mm-hmm. and what has that has caused the direct impact of that is a brain drain. Right, Lebanese are very adaptable. Mm-hmm. My cousin lives in Tennessee. I'm going to go work at the gas station in Tennessee. I'm going to send my child to learn, work in Dubai because my sister, who's married to I don't know who, moved to Dubai or mm-hmm. Australia or Canada. You know, and what you see lately is that the qualified people are leaving, and what we're left with are the People that are not qualified or don't have the skill sets to really manage. But there's also another part to this that, Bob, I think you'd be interested in, is that uh, uh, Hezbollah, which is basically a proxy, Iranian proxy in the area, and a very efficient one,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, also thrives when it becomes a cash economy, because there's no traceability. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now, cash is flowing left, right, and center, and that's for them... As a godsend because, you know, uh, they can do whatever they need to do without having any traceability. So I'll give you a small example. Uh, Fuel was being smuggled into Lebanon after 2019. The government tried to use some of that $33 billion of depositors' money, it's theft, to subsidize the cost of energy because the energy prices were skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. And, And by the way, we only have an hour of electricity a day. So the whole country runs on either gensets or, or photovoltaic now. But perhaps that's a, that's a good impact is that people have moved over to, to uh, renewable energies mm-hmm. because it's cheaper on the long run. But what happened was that these subsidies for fuel was being brought into the country and it was being smuggled out. And since it's a cash economy, there's no way you can control who did you sell 10,000 liters of fuel to and where they sold it. And this was all fueling their their activities, and and you know that was an important side note uh, to note because Hezbollah and Iran benefited benefited tremendously from this meltdown, and sadly politically that's a that's a different. If you want, we can talk about politics uh, first. I take just it, want to take it wherever. About-
0: yeah, take it wherever you want to go. But it, it's interesting. I just want to maybe highlight this that you know it. it People that are listening to this, it's, it's not like, um, you know, Lebanon was a backwards country or community. I mean, we're talking a a vibrant economy, a, a modern economy, and that this was all triggered by a, a $6 tax on WhatsApp. I mean, and, and people, there's probably lots of people around the world who think, well, this can't happen to my country. This can't happen in my hometown. And I think it's amazing that when you really sit back and think about it, how quickly something like this can happen in the most modern, most advanced economies in the world. I mean, it, 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 am I getting that right? Do you agree or disagree with that, that thought process?
1: Absolutely. In 1968, Lebanon had the fourth best GDP income in the world. It was America, Germany, uh, Lebanon, and I don't remember what the fourth country was. And if you go back to 2011 and 2015, the economy was booming. Mm-hmm. people were being able to take out loans from banks to plastic surgery. I mean, it was just like capitalism at its at its best. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I might sound a bit facetious, but the the lady that would do the nails for my wife would take three vacations a year to go to Turkey, Dubai, and travel the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I mean, while while if you look at a, a, a manicure salon in the States, a, a lady would take a vacation once a year, probably mm-hmm. to visit a cousin, to drive the car, and to be, yeah. you know... Frugal on her income, mm-hmm. the economy was just going through the roof. I mean, I don't think you would have seen as many Rolexes and Hermes bags and Patek Philippe's and mm-hmm. all these luxury items that you identify with conspicuous consumption uh, as you had seen in Lebanon. And come one week, and what you thought was taken for granted was just obliterated. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's a lot, lot of lessons to be learned. I mean, you know, this is what we take for granted is not really that's that, you know, that set in stone or that's cemented. Uh, I think all countries have to be very careful. Now with the war in Ukraine, the prices of energy, the way the world is shifting. I mean, when you and I were in Harvard, it was all about the world being flat, the internet democratizing the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now all of a sudden we see this polarization and this nationalism all over the world and countries building borders. Once you know, you, England left the European mm-hmm. Union, and, and, and in America, you have, you know, the, these progressives, and then you have the, 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 the ultra-conservative on the other side. In Hungary, you have the same thing. In Italy, you see a rise of nationalism coming back around the world, and it's not the world is flat anymore as much as we used to think of it. You know, the, economically, we talk about the World Trade Organization and WTO. I think it's pretty much gone up in pixie dust, as far as I know today. Mm-hmm. It's about what do you produce that's made in America? Don't get me wrong, I'm an American citizen, and America, for me, is home. Mm-hmm. It's, it's where I belong. Uh, the reason I'm here in Lebanon at the moment fighting this is because our kids came to us in 2019. We, we had moved half to America and half to Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And our plan was, since our kids were going to college in the States, to move completely to the States. And our kids came up to my wife and I, Shereen and I, and we have two kids. And they came up to us and said, you know, you talk the talk, are you going to walk the talk? Are you going to go back and live by your country? Uh, you know, this is when one of your children and one of your children is sick. Are you going to stay there and help it? Or are you going to, you know, mm-hmm. jump ship and go live in the States? Wow. And so morally, I think maybe this will tie in later in some, some of the questions that you might have. But I think morally, there's an obligation to tell our kids that we don't talk the talk. We also walk it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and coming back to Lebanon and, and, and settling here and fighting this I think as first and foremost, setting an example to our kids on what should be done.
0: Well, one of my favorite John Maxwell quotes is, "Everything rises and falls on leadership." And for bad situations to get fixed, it requires strong leadership. And it, it and it sometimes, oftentimes, that's leadership boots on the ground, right there in country doing the dirty work. You can't, you know, uh, provide leadership from New York or L.A. It, and, and so it's, and a lot of people will want to try to help, but you need to have people that are strong leaders, competent leaders right there um, doing the heavy lifting. And so my hat's off to you. I applaud you for you know, the sacrifices that you and your family are making because you don't have to be. You I mean, you could be, you could live anywhere in the world right now. But you know, I've heard you talk many times about uh, how Lebanon is close to your heart. And uh, like you said, it's like your third child, and you want to see the country. Uh, And the people thrive and prosper. A a question I have for you, for maybe the listeners that are you know listening in, since you have lived this right and you've you've watched all of this unfold, when you when you look in the rearview mirror, hindsight you know always being twenty twenty, are there signs? Are there things that you're like you know what I missed this or I didn't you know going forward at when if a country or a region or something is starting to go through these tumultuous times there's warning signs that people should be aware of right like what what advice could you give to people who say hey these are things that you when if you see if you sense going on around you that, that ought to be like little red flags or warning signs that you know you're heading in this direction do you have any of those
1: yeah, I, I do, actually, and, and it's funny you say that because I see a lot of similarities between what happened in Lebanon previously and what's happening in the States today. I think when you see this uh, this education system, the cultural system falling apart, it becomes really dangerous. Uh, I, I don't mean to play politics in the States, but I think what the progressives are doing now in the States with this, uh, you know, America is a capitalist country based on meritocracy. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a chance to get a white picket fence and two cars and a garage and a swimming pool if they work hard enough and if they do it well enough. A lot of people will tell me, well, there are certain people that don't have the opportunity. Yeah, well, I think America should revamp its education system. The inner city school system is is dysfunctional, Mm -hmm. but that does not give the right for anybody that comes from an inner city school to take the opportunity away from a person that's worked his ass off to get to a certain position, excuse my, 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 my foul language. Hmm. But I think what I see in the States today reminds me a lot about Lebanon. It's, it's more about who you are and where you come from. And we have a system in Lebanon where, where uh, positions in government and positions in leadership are divided based on your religion and on the sect you belong to, not based on your meritocracy.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, I see that happening in the States today based on ethnicity and not based on, on religion. But that's not that's not the right way to go. Leadership, like you said, is, is earned and that's earned by hard work and by proof of of merit. Mm-hmm. It's not because you're Bob Dickey from Tennessee and there's no person from Tennessee that's in the army that you have to be the admiral of the army.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's whether you deserve to be the admiral of the army. Sorry if I, I don't again, I don't know if I'm gonna get a lot of heat from this podcast from people that are gonna think, but when I see you know universities, I see our professors suffering because uh, a person belongs to a certain category becomes the president of the university but has zero publications and and these people have been working their ass off to publish mm-hmm. for for 20 30 years with the dream that they might be a viable candidate for that position mm-hmm. just wiped out i yeah uh, we saw that in lebanon it was basically who did you know to get the position It seems like in the states now it's where do you come from to get that position Mm -hmm. and and we're losing the right in the states to have the you know the freedom of speech if i say something that's politically incorrect all of a sudden i'm canceled i mean that's america what are you talking about america is the place where i can get up on the rooftop and say whatever the hell i want the reason i wanted to always go there is because I could say, you know, screw President Bush, screw President Clinton, screw Reagan, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd be free to say whatever I want mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be held accountable. Now it seems that if I say that to a certain certain people, mm-hmm. I might be canceled. And mm-hmm. America, nobody was supposed to be canceled. We're all equal, right? Unalienable rights. we were all given and and but so yes, we saw that in Lebanon in the in the two thousands and the nineties, and basically we paid the price in two thousand nineteen. And uh, I I see lots of parallels with the states. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anyone. You're not you're not
0: gonna you're not gonna offend anybody, buddy. We've had so many people on this podcast talking about the exact same things. I do think that there's a uh, an awakening that's happening. Uh, i i in this the, the the cancel culture and some of the things that are uh, that are going on i I think people's eyes are being opened, and we're having real dialogue and conversations about this now where they were and before I think people just kind of kept their heads down and didn't say anything uh, but the, the listeners of this podcast I, I i think by and large agree with your assessment i think are very concerned um i mean you you can you take a look at there's countries all around the world you have to have a uh, Positions of authority, and there are just places where you need competence. You and the person that needs to, like, I want the most competent surgeon doing open heart surgery on me. I don't care if it's a man or a woman, I don't care what religion they are, I don't care what uh, background or orientation they are. I just want the most competent heart surgeon working on me, just like I want the most competent airline pilot flying my. My, uh, my family on vacation, right? It's like I don't care about all these other um, designations. I just want, there's, there's places where you need competence and uh, that should be first and foremost, n- not other things. And so, um, and, I, and I think it, we need people to be able to speak out about it. And, that, and I think that that's happening here within the United States. I think that's, that's what you're arguing and articulating, correct?
1: That's, that's what I'm trying to say. I think this pendulum has swung perhaps way too far on the other side. It needs to come back to the middle. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, for all I care, Bob, you can identify yourself as a mushroom, mm-hmm. but you better know how to fly the plane that I'm on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, whether you identify as a mushroom or not, that's your business. That has nothing to do with me. But whether it, it's not you being a mushroom that's going to make the plane fly. Mm-hmm. It's whether you're a good pilot or not, right? right? right. And, and I think that's that's the most important point uh, that I'm trying to make. And what I'm trying to say is that the, I saw that in Lebanon, it wasn't whether you were a competent pilot or not, it was whether you were the cousin of the minister or from a certain sect, because that sect had to get four pilots. And so you had to have four Catholics, to have four Sunnis, to have four Shias. So if they weren't all 12 divided equally because of keeping the balance of sex. Mm-hmm. And look at the end result. You have a country that's got no financial sector, a cultural education sector that's melting down at the, at the, at the speed of light. Mm-hmm. You have a health sector that's suffering and, 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 and bleeding from all over trying to survive. This is one of the, you know, number three at the NIH is Lebanese, you know. Okay. <laughs> no, this is, this is, and, and he graduated from the American University of Beirut five, eight years ago.
0: One of my best friends in, uh, in high school, uh, his family was a Lebanese family that had immigrated to the United States as grandparents and they were a very prominent uh, business owners uh, in the Flint area, uh, Lebanese family. And I, I just, I grew up, I mean, it seemed like every time I turned around, you know, p- uh, prominent business leaders in the community were, were from Lebanon. And so it's, it, it, Lebanon has this rich heritage of just uh, brilliant, brilliant individuals, artisans, um artisans i should say um it, you know it, the culture right and like as you said this the diaspora is all over the world and it's just sad because you know i i know so many like you would want to go back home and live in the home country uh but because of all the dysfunction you know they're they're forced to kind of seek asylum and uh a life someplace else
1: and, and that's where i see the parallel with the states you don't give me your needy and hungry and that was the call in the States. You had the opportunity, no matter how poor you were, no matter where you came from, if you went and worked your ass off, you were going to get to the wherever position that you were going to get to. Mm-hmm. And now, as of late, I have lots of people that I see and I ask, and they're like, no, no, we don't want to go to America. We're actually seeing a reverse migration from America. I'm seeing lots of my friends that are moving to the tax havens outside of the United States, and they're sick and tired of doing what they're doing. I'll give you a, an example. We're building a museum here with uh, with the Jesuit school mm-hmm. for our national culture and heritage. And the architect is a is a is a you know was the dean of architecture at Columbia. And in confidence and forum, uh, she she quit her job. And she's she's actually uh, progressive. She's not that conservative. Mm-hmm. She's not. She does not think like you and I perhaps think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and. She, I asked her, why did you quit your job? And she said, well, I'm spending six to eight hours with the lawyers on the phone. You know, six to eight hours with the lawyers on the phone on issues of uh, mine, her, him, her, his, and I'm not doing any more architecture. Um, Another dear friend that teaches at Princeton gets called in by by certain higher-ups at the school, person that has tenure, and says, why aren't you using pronouns in the class? And the, the professor says, look, Bob has a name put his name, and I'll call him by his name or her name. But I'm not going to make a mistake of calling him a her or his tomorrow, and they're going to wipe out 30 years of my career that I've been working really hard to produce because I made a mistake because of my, you know, my, 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 I forgot the pronoun that they want. I have no issues. They can choose whatever pronoun they want. All right. And so, again,
0: um, it's a- it's amazing that like a thirty-year career can get canceled because of one minor mistake like that. So like we've got the inmates running the asylum, where you know some person can say, "Well, they they used my wrong pronoun once by accident. It wasn't malicious. It was by accident." All right, that thirty-year-old, that thirty professor, thirty-year tenured professor at Princeton who could be the top physicist in the world. All right, you can't get to, you don't get to work here anymore
1: and 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 you just erased like you know 30 40 years of hard sweat tears and and and, and you know lots of mm-hmm. work and i think you know america is very it's very simple america's always been the leading country in the world because of its innovation mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and if you're going to lose uh, the ability to produce these innovators and mm-hmm. these colleges I mean, it's these colleges that were, thanks to grants from the government, that were able to produce, you know, DARPA and all the other, all the other agencies that were able to produce these outlying, you know, technologies that are today basically what we use for everyday life yeah. and that gave America its economic advantage and its, hence its, its, its ability to, to set the standards for, for living. If, if you're going to be not attracting these people on the short term, you might not feel the pain. Mm-hmm. But on the medium term and long term, brace yourselves.
0: Yeah.
1: You're, you're looking for an outlook just like, like we are. So I don't know if I got your question to show parallelism between what we saw in Lebanon and what we saw. And then also another parallel thing I can give you is that when you leave financial institutions to act for greed, you know, and you don't have regulation, these are beasts that can, you know, become... Can, too big to fail. Mm-hmm. And when they're too big to fail, you know, they destroy it. You have the case of Enron, and you have other cases in America that happened, and you remember when we did Bank of Acovia and Bank of America at the time, mm-hmm. and so on. And these can also destroy so much value, just for the greed of a couple of CEOs bonus scheme. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these need to be regulated in a way that's, that's intelligent. So I think you have to see the pendulum swing back to the middle, I hope to God that the leadership in America does go back to the middle and and, and provide us, you know, it's, it's, it's our if America goes, where are we going to go live? In Russia or China? <laughs> it's not, you know. Sorry.
0: Yeah, I, I'm with you. Well, here, one of the things that you you mentioned just a second ago about maybe the the diaspora of various countries changing the location of where they're wanting to go live and. You know, post World War II, one of the things that you saw come out of the United States, it, 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 as the United States had kind of become the uh, one of the main superpowers post World War II, we saw so many people from all over Europe, all over the world, that immigrated into the United States. Most of the great inventions, technology inventions, uh, in energy, uh, in, in physics, you, you name it, came from these incredibly gifted, smart people from all around the world. Who came and decided, you know what, I want to live in the United States, I want to raise a family, uh, and I am going to you know, rebuild my life in the United States. Uh, so much of the greatness that the United States has had to offer the world has be- become, or because of this you know, great immigration that we've had. Uh, now, I'm, I'm curious, where are you seeing people today, as you travel the world, as you're seeing people make decisions and you're saying, well, you know what, maybe the United States isn't at the top of the list anymore. And w- w- so where are they going? Where are the, where are the places that people are, are seeing and saying, you know what, I, I find freedom here. I find uh, opportunity here and maybe I, I, I want to plant my flag and raise my family in a different location.
1: So you, you see a lot of people going towards Asia because there's a huge opportunity for growth in Asia. Okay. The ones that are that are risk takers are more likely to go to Africa okay. because Africa has got a lot of resources and people are have nothing, so the opportunity is there for them to build is tremendous. For the people that have wealth, uh, Europe Europe is acting because they're they're giving them lots of tax breaks. Okay. So you have uh, Italy that has a hundred thousand dollar flat tax rate that has a also a an exchange program with the united with the irs in the states where it qualifies so a lot of people are going there a lot of people are going to switzerland also where there's a flat tax rate on the worldwide income but, but that's for the wealthy mm-hmm. the people that are looking for opportunities they're mostly looking at, at, at asia and africa as the next eldorados where they get their ability to make uh, a, a you know ridiculous amount of wealth okay. um you know, some things that some things that the left says in the states is is true. It's not possible to have two percent, two people own as much as fifty percent of what American people own. Mm-hmm. I mean, there has to be a correction. But I think the correction on the left is much bigger than the correction on the right because the right still, you know, believes in the opportunity and in the land of opportunity. And that 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 has been the other thing that I'd like to tell you, Bob, is yeah. that you know the dollar the economy in America, the main reason that this is all being kept together is there's no viable alternative. Mm-hmm. You're not going to take your money outside of the dollar and put it in renminbi or in, in, in rubles, right? Because they're not safe. They're not secure uh, as far as, as, as safe havens. So the dollar is staying strong because it's, there's no viable option. You remember the Bitcoin and the tokens and the mm-hmm. Doge and all, all of that. That took a certain amount of hype. But I think it's a question of time that people and if America is going to keep sanctioning people, mm-hmm. people are going to look for viable alternatives to hide their, their, their wealth with. Mm-hmm. And, they're going to, and they're going to go to other currencies. The issue is that the other currencies that are viable right now are not viable. They're not safe. But as soon as there's somebody that comes out with some sort of alternative, then there's a danger that's 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 really dangerous to, to America uh, in that in that sense. I, I think Canada Acting as a socialist country has not been able to be a safe haven for Americans, although I know you and I know a couple of Americans that have moved to, to Canada. Mm-hmm. But it's a socialist. It's not a capitalist country, and hence taxation and all kinds of different laws that doesn't make it attractive to U.S. citizens to go there. But if, if they were to change and adapt, I think there's, <laughs> there's, there's real danger for, for, for America, as we know it, to keep its leadership. Um, Another thing that I'd like to note is that when China, because China came to this part of the world, we're part of the belt roadway Mm -hmm. system that they're building. Uh, The Lebanese tried to steal, them. that's why they ran away. It's not because they they didn't find. But there is one note that's really important. The Chinese don't care what kind of political system you belong to. They don't care if you're a dictator or if you're an oligarch or if you're socialist or if you're a capitalist. They want your resources. They're willing to give you money for them, for them. Uh, the thing is that the Lebanese are such, you know, the leadership is such, it's, they're such crooks mm-hmm. that they tried to swindle the Chinese and the Chinese figured that out quickly and just skipped town. Yeah. But I, I think uh, that's something America has also to look at, whether, whether, whether you deal with a country because it's democratic or not, is that country's own business,
0: mm-hmm. you know.
1: Uh, I think that has to, there, ha- there has to be a swing there. But I'm sorry, I'm taking you no. way off.
0: No, this this is great. I actually want to double click on something you just said. Like you going back to the beginning, you were highlighting about there was a, there's a lack of trust in the Lebanese uh, currency, and uh, the United States has a position of trust globally, where people are like, well, where else am I going to go? I am going to I am going to store my resources, my wealth in U.S. dollars, and that has uh, enabled the U.S. economy to grow and thrive because there really isn't another place where you can do that. But it's all based on trust. And so, if the United States were to lose trust with its creditors, its investors, so forth, we could find ourselves in the exact same situation that the Lebanese population is, um, where it's like, "Hey, this system no longer works." And I'm I'm wondering if you can give some insight because it it felt like we started to see a little bit of that when um, Russia invaded Ukraine, and we had we uh, kicked off that war there, and all of a sudden, the United States came out with the most severe and draconian um, uh, oh, what, sanctions that we've, ever, that we've ever had. And I think it, it was a wake-up call around the globe. All of a sudden, you started seeing, it wasn't just Russia, but you started seeing France and Australia and other countries starting to um, say, oh my goodness, look at uh, what can happen. And the United States can play hardball here. And you started seeing uh, countries uh, increase their gold reserves sell some u s treasuries reduce their reduce some of their uh, holdings um, have you have you been tracking that I mean what what insight do you have because it, it felt like there was a like an inflection point where countries around the globe are trying to m- maybe minimize exposure to what they had in the united States is, is that an accurate statement
1: oh it's an extremely accurate statement I think even Saudi Arabia went and did a deal with for oil with China, and they were they accepted to be paid in, in, in yuan or mm. renminbi, and it's the, I think it's the first transaction of that type that's not going to be based on the U.S. dollar, and and uh, that that in itself is is tremendous. I know lots of individuals in YPO and other that have switched their positions and have come come out of the dollar. They they want to have a minimal exposure in dollar because they're worried if their country. Does some sort of mistake that uh, displeases America, that America will sanction them based on their nationality. Mm-hmm. And if they sanction them, then they have they freeze their credit cards, the banks freeze their bank accounts, yada yada yada. And what happened now is that they're going into they're buying they're buying currencies that they think that are much more stable in terms of fluctuation, but not as strong. So many of them are buying Emirati dirhams or Saudi rials or or you know these. Swiss francs is huge. Mm-hmm. If you look at if you look at how many how much how many Swiss franc banknotes are in circulation today as opposed to ten years ago, it's a very strong indicator that people are taking their money out of the banks. They're stashing it in cash, mm-hmm. and they're not putting it in dollars because they're scared shitless that someday, you know, they're going to get a call from the bank and say, "Oh, all your dollar accounts are frozen. You're not allowed to transact in dollars." Anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you and I have many Russian friends that were in YPO in Harvard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that have, you know, paid the price for something that they had nothing to do with. Right. Remove the, the several cronies that were the government and that were dependent on the state. There's many businessmen that had nothing to do with, with yeah. the political system of Putin and Russia, right. and that are now basically forbidden to travel, can't use credit cards, had their kids stuck in different countries with no cash, with no ability to, achieve, to, to get to there. So, yeah, everybody's talking about what's the viable alternative. The issue like you said, is there hasn't been a currency or um, a conduit uh, that, that you know, that, a receptacle that's been safe enough for people to do that big migration. But a lot of people have gotten gold, uh, a lot of people are buying diamonds, a lot of people are buying portable wealth, and, and, they're, and they're moving away. And, and many of the mega-rich that I know in the states are getting out of the states. They're just sick and tired of the issues. Um, I can give you tons of examples. A friend had restaurants in the South. 120, he was number one franchisee for Taco Bell and Wendy's. And he just went and sold half of his restaurant because he was sick and tired of being treated as an entitled, you know, bastard. The Mm. guy had gone uh, started out with uh, one uh, what, do you, what do you call those the the, the the carriages the vans he started selling hot dogs in a van
0: oh yeah the, the yeah the, the the street vendors uh, the, the the food carts he started and, yeah. Out as a,
1: mm-hmm. yeah he started out as a food cart guy with a, and he ended up owning 120 restaurants and he's just sick and tired of the problems that he's having
2: mm-hmm. you know
1: they uh, one manager forgot to wake up one day and he he called him to you know, to get, he, Fridays he had forty employees that couldn't work that day because the manager forgot to wake up. He called the guy and gave him piece of his mind, and the next day he got sued because he was talking to him that way because the guy was from a different type of uh, ethnicity. Mm-hmm. The guys, like I just need to open my shop. I don't yeah. care whether you're white, blue, black, or mushroom or whatever it is. You just right. need to open. And he got sued, and he got sued for six hundred thousand dollars. And the guy just decided, you know, this is not worth the headache. Just yeah. let me. You know, sell this and get the hell out of Dodge, mm-hmm. you know? And, 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 and again, you know, uh, it's, 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 I think, a question of time. And I think the, the, the U.S. government's got to gotta figure out that it, it's been doing things a bit wrong. It needs to course correct in order to. And that needs leadership. And leadership, as you, you are, I think, are an exemplary leader. And thank you for the service that you, you did for our country as well when you're in the armed services. And I think, you know, leadership is hard work and it's, it's you know, meritocracy, it's me- me- measurable
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, KPIs that can say whether you deserve to be that leader or not. It's not because you're from Tennessee, Bob. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> you know? with all respect to Tennessee, yeah. sorry.
0: No, it's a, it's a great a great example. Um, well, you know, I, I want to, I'd like to ask you, you, you a question regarding where you see people putting their wealth. And I, I know this is maybe a little bit down a rabbit trail, but you mentioned Bitcoin. And I know that we've gone through kind of a, a crypto winter here in 2021, right? We've had the, the FTX uh, scandal, Sam Bankman freed and the collapse there. And there's there's been some um, pretty stiff headwinds in this space. Now, I've talked to some people who are very much uh, deep in the space as investors and developers, and you're like hey th- it's not fun, but it this is going to get rid of all the companies and uh you know projects that that aren't good quality projects, but virtually to a person, all of them stay say that the you know the o g in the space still and the most trusted in the space still is bitcoin. do you see um you know, as you're talking about people who are trying to maybe diversify their their holdings and their savings and getting into gold or diamonds and you know swiss francs whatnot are you are you talking to uh folks or under seeing folks use bitcoin as a conduit do you see that as a a project or a, a kind of a cryptocurrency that has some strong um future possibilities
1: i, I think bitcoin is a viable alternative, but that's mostly for the people that want to stay off the radar. Mm-hmm. But what I see uh, seasoned investors doing is they're going to real estate. Okay. I think real estate has been uh, a viable second option. And, you know, as they say, as I think it was, uh, was uh, I forgot the name of the author, but he said it It was beautiful, beautifully said, is they don't make any more of it, mm-hmm. right? So real estate is finite, and it's 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 something that a lot of people are going to because they think it's a safe haven. Bitcoin remains a bit of a quagmire because it's not as transparent as lots of people want it to be. So those established investors will dabble in it, but I don't think they will. You, I mean, you have the old ones out to do that in yeah. and out, but I don't think that the, the big family offices and the funds and the, and the, and will we'll put a big packet on it. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, that's that's my, my opinion but i'm sorry you wanted to talk about lebanon in the middle east Do you yes. want me to bring this back
0: yes thank you for doing that well um, what about um so let, let's get back to you you talked about the october 19th uh whatsapp revolution unbelievable that a revolution started over a six dollar tax on whatsapp it's amazing to see how these revolutions around the world it can there's this uh the straw that breaks the camel's back um and and where it leads, and then my goodness, so we've got that in 2019, and then 2020 happens. And then you and I were together in Boston um, just weeks before the pandemic broke out. And uh, you know, here you are. Uh, you're the chairman of uh, Heiko Hi- Hospital there in Tripoli, and uh, so you have a background in medicine and hospital management. Uh, I'd really like to get your insight on how the pandemic impacted you know your hometown, uh, lebanon, um, your business uh, what changes do you see coming out of it? What did we learn? I mean, there's so much to unpack here, but take it any direction you'd like to go
1: so uh- well, we got, we got the pandemic and we also got the 4th of August explosion. We had, a, 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 I think, the second or third biggest explosion after Hiroshima and Nagasaki yeah. that happened in Beirut that wiped out maybe a third of the, of, of the capital. Um, for the pandemic, because they tie down together, what happened was basically Lebanon survived because of our amazing ability to adapt.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we're an extremely adaptable type of culture and people. Uh, Contrary to what most people think, we're not resilient. We we will look to find the first way out. But we will adapt in the meantime in order to get to that stage. Mm -hmm. And the healthcare sector, the private healthcare sector, came together in an amazing way. Uh, We had a mortality rate that was less than most of the Western countries. And we also had an average bill that was maybe, I think, one-eighth of a percent of what the West was paying for COVID patient, wow. uh, We adapted right away. Uh, we, we run a hospital in the North that's, that treats about 92,000 patients a year. We're the biggest one in the North today, North Lebanon. And we had the influx also of the Syrians because of the Syrian civil war that's been going on since
2: 2011.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, we basically transfer transformed the hospital into a COVID hospital. It became uh, 75 respirators, uh, four ECMO machines, and uh, the Lebanese the Lebanese innovation in and adaptability was tremendous. Uh, now, what that did, though later, which we see today, is coupled with the explosion that just ripped the country apart. Uh, and the explosion, to be clear, was basically because of the mismanagement of the political elite that had left. 2,750 kilos of, of uh, chemicals in the port, and that blew up, and that was close to what is considered a nuclear
0: explosion. The imagery of that was absolutely astonishing. I mean, it looked like a nuclear blast.
1: Yeah, and uh, and it, it was it was you know it was like how can I say it? in French they say it's the coup de gras. It was the sweet. It was the you know, like the the, the straw that broke the the horse's back Mm -hmm. in terms of having a huge migration and brain drain on the medical sector in Lebanon. We had been very good at adapting with COVID, but when that explosion came and, you know, the world, the entire world needed health caregivers, from nurses to medical caregivers to doctors, and then we saw a huge brain drain. Mm -hmm. Uh, 40% of the doctors and nurses just evaporated from lebanon mm-hmm. so here you had a country that had economic problems that was suffering from all kinds of financial issues lose uh, just about uh, uh, you know 40 of their of their caregivers and and that is huge because usually the people you lose are the best ones
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know and they were offered the uh, citizenships and the Gulf, uh, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and Qatar was and Kuwait were giving, you know, residencies and, and all kinds of ridiculous type of uh, uh, pension uh, uh, remuneration, and we even had the Swiss, the French, the Belgians, Canada, the United States. Um, I personally lost six nurses to to the United States that went to the States and got amazing jobs and visas right off the bat. And, you know, uh, fast track to a green card if they were if they were to move to the states, and so that that was a huge blow to the health sector in Lebanon. Um, Lebanon's basically surviving today on remittances, and these remittances are coming from those wonderful Lebanese that have immigrated, like your friend from from high school, mm-hmm. that send money back to their village. That, however, being said, is also a curse because, in another way, it's keeping this cronies in power, and nobody's really, you know, going down to the streets. And you have to understand, Bob, in Lebanon, people don't pay taxes. I mean, remove a few of the major companies that are obliged to pay taxes; the income tax is basically non-existent in Lebanon. So when people think that politicians are stealing, it's not their money that they're stealing; they're stealing the money of other people, right? Mm-hmm. Now, when they weren't able to access their money in the banks, then it became all of a sudden their money is also not accessible. Uh, a real revolution has not happened in Lebanon, and, and, and it will come. The Lebanese will, at some point, perhaps I'm emotionally vested, and mm-hmm. this is, this is my, my heart that's speaking and not my brain, and I think a point will come where we will have a real revolution. And this operating system that's managed by these warlords will just have to go the only issue is that we have a catalyst, which is this Hezbollah, which is financed by Iran. Some people say they get 120 million dollars a month to finance their, their activities. That's a sticking point because they have weapons, and you know most of the Lebanese people have weapons, but they're not organized as a militia like the Hezbollah is organized. And and that has been that has been, and uh, we have to say thank you to America because the only reason we have the lebanese army today laugh we call them the lebanese armed forces is because of the financing that's coming to the united states to keep the lebanese army standing and that's the only institution in lebanon today that's standing on its own two feet and and it's really thanks to the american taxpayer that that's being financed Uh, they've done a wonderful job on the hill to keep them propped and uh, that also has been an advantage because you remember a few years back we had ISIS and and Daesh and Qaeda all over this area, and those people have completely subsided. Now, I'm going to say something that you're—it's not very popular in the States. We have also had, uh, uh, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who's been lately coming to power, and he has abolished political Islam. Political Islam in Saudi Arabia, the, the you know, the, the birthplace of political Islam, if you like, I mean not the birthplace, but the the place where it was being you know, nurtured and and, and 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 kept alive was, was Saudi Arabia. Mm. It goes back to American policy with Saudi Arabia to fight Russian occupation of Afghanistan, but mm-hmm. it, that's a different, that's a different, you know, different issue that I, I wouldn't go talk about. But what we had is for the last 50, 60 years, Saudi Arabia was financing political Islam. And all of a sudden, we have this young new leader that just, you know, cut the snake's head off and mm. said, political Islam feats no more. We're not going to use that anymore. We're going to believe in meritocracy. We're going to believe in coexistence. And Saudi Arabia has switched and turned. And it's, you know, it's like having, a, a, you know, an aircraft carrier turned. So it's, it's, it's a long it's a long, heavy turn, mm-hmm. but we feel it here. So you start seeing the political Islam diminish, and that for us as minorities, you know, I'm I'm half Christian, I'm half Jewish, I'm married to a, a Shireen, who's half Alawite, half Sunni. So we've got all the religions in our family. Mm-hmm. For us, it's a huge sigh of relief to see this regional superpower all of a sudden turn, turn, uh, turn cap, and and and, and head towards. You know, uh, multirationalism, multisectarian uh, acceptance—to—to uh, to throw away this this uh, rhetoric of of Wahhabism and and, and political Islam. So, if, in the states, I know they have issues with uh, his past and what he's done with Khashoggi, et etc. Mm-hmm. For us, it's it's a huge sigh of relief. It's actually a a, a slight ray of light. At the end of the tunnel, to say that minorities can actually have a future in this part of the world, and we're not going to go down that dark tunnel where previously, if you were, you know, radical Islam was 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 taking on like white fire in the area, and so and the Lebanese armed forces have done a great job of keeping those people at bay, and it's mostly thanks to the U.S. Army and the, and, and you know uh, the funding that comes from the states to the Lebanese army.
0: It's amazing that. Uh, a political decision that Ben Saliman, uh made in Saudi Arabia has had such a uh, immediate impact on the daily life of Lebanon. Uh, it, it, like, I, I don't know if I connected those dots. Um, and for you to be able to experience it so quickly, uh, that's, that's pretty astonishing.
1: It, it is, it is. And, it, and actually, it's, it's what we don't understand is the way the West, and especially America is reacting. Mm-hmm. And again, it's that left side of, of progressives that they had a you know, the killing of Khashoggi mm-hmm. that was done in such a stupid and, 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 and of course somebody needs to be held accountable for. We can't take that one incident and just put it on a pedestal and forget about everything else that's being done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the women are allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia now, they don't need to wear the hijab anymore. They, You know, Islam is, is, is to be practiced in the privacy of your own home or in your own, in your own place of worship. Uh, if you're Christian, you can function like anybody else. Uh, all these liberties that are coming that were unheard of for 70 mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. people don't see that in the West. People see Khashoggi. Mm-hmm. But needless to say, people in my part of the world also see a Salman bin Rushdie, who was an, Amer- was an American citizen who was giving a speech in America, was attacked by an Iranian proxy, mm-hmm. uh, stabbed live in front of everybody, lost the use of his right eye, and then you see the American press not even talking about it. Mm-hmm. And that's an American citizen versus Khashoggi being a Saudi citizen, right? Mm-hmm. right. And, you know, and, and they forget to say in the West that this was an agent of, 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 of the intelligence in Saudi Arabia who flipped sides and went to the other side. And if you read a little bit, and I think, Bob, you're definitely a reference, when you have an agent go rogue, you don't deal with them in the nicest of ways. Now, I'm not trying to justify right. what they did, but, you know, countries do these things. But we don't see that you have 200,000 students in Saudi Arabia right now learning how to be tolerant of other religions when they were being taught a very different kind of firebrand Islam previously, right? So we don't see that that's going to affect Afghanistan, that's going to affect Pakistan in the medium and long-term mm-hmm. Egypt. That's going to affect the whole Middle East mm-hmm. and, and the West. Well, let's not forget that he killed his journalist. Right. I mean, seriously? Yeah. Seriously? yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, you know, this guy is trying to do a real change. And he's trying to build a country with an mm-hmm. economy that's not based on resource. And he's he's completely fought against radical Islam, again, mm-hmm. and political Islam. And for us, he's a hero.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he put all these corrupt individuals that have been dealing with corruption through corruption and crony systems for years. He's actually, for us, a person that most Arab countries will tell you we wish we had an MBS today. Wow. Mohammed bin Salman today. Mm-hmm. Right? If we would have one in Lebanon that would put all these corrupt politicians in jail and shake them down for all the money they stole, mm-hmm. we would have a financial crisis. Wow. <laughs> right, yeah. and so uh, yeah, there is there is a disconnect uh, with American foreign policy in local regional politics, and especially when it comes to the minorities, the Catholics and and, and the Jews, and you can see that with the, with with the, uh, the laymen on the daily basis.
0: But just hearing you talk and explain, you know, what you're seeing on the ground there in the Middle East, your perspectives, your insights. You know it just it, it goes to show you that you can't read a headline in the in the London Times or the Financial Times or the New York uh, uh, papers, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and assume that, that 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 the headline is capturing all the nuance, all the various shades of gray of the particular issue. You've got to take a, a much larger aperture and view of of the issue at hand, and it's it, it's a lot more complex. And it's one of the reasons why I love having conversations with people like you because you give the, um, so many more uh, perspectives, and you know, the, and, and share the various nuances that m- many times gets lost in some of those headlines.
1: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree, and it's it's sad that you know, in the states and with social media today, it's just that title, like mm-hmm. you said, and that's what we'll remember. Bob was drunk one night and he didn't behave well. I mean, you're forgetting about how many years of service and what he's done. And he just had one bad night. Maybe mm-hmm. he had a fight with his with his wife that night. Maybe mm-hmm. he had a he had an issue with with his best friend. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, can't we give each other? I think our tolerance to to hear the real story is is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's gone. Uh, you know, this cancel culture and this this social media. Anybody can write anything they want about you without fact checking, without mm-hmm. coming back to you and say, "Hey, what happened?" You know, I consider you to be a very dear friend. I might have one day said, well, to hell with Bob. Look what he did yesterday. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean I don't love Bob. Mm -hmm. I might have, you know, it's just I might be having a bad day. You know, and and it's sad. It's sad that it's come to this. But, you know, uh, the West, the West sadly loves these Disney narratives. You know, it's black and white. Well, no, most of the world is gray, and it's not black and white. This, this knight is not going to come on a white horse and pick you up and take you. And, and it's the you know, there's no such thing as perfect human beings. We all make mistakes, and the guy made a mistake. And, you know, think, but look at all the good things he's doing. You know, if we put a cantilever scale and we put the good things, the bad things, perhaps the good things outweigh the bad things. And, you know, we should, we should listen to their side of the story. We should have some empathy as well
0: you know we well, we had dr sajeen gohill on the the podcast uh, he's a professor um, at the london uh, S- uh, school of economics uh, he's an expert in middle east um, politics and specifically uh, terrorism and you know he he was concerned he shared a couple of his concerns about uh, the quick withdrawal of the united states after you know disastrous episodes in Iraq, Afghanistan and, and various things like that and maybe a, and, you know he was trying to make some predictions of where he sees uh, the Middle East going um, and especially since there's been this pivot in the West towards you know, the, the Europe and the war in Ukraine and then of course uh, saber rattling and what's going on in the South China Sea, are you uh, able to um, give some insight or uh, maybe projections or predictions? of what you think might you know be transpiring in the years to come? Do you, do, you, do you get a sense of a direction? I know it's a very complicated and nuanced topic, but um, it sounds like you've got your finger on the pulse and you're seeing some positive changes. Are, are, do, are you more positive or less positive about the future?
1: Well, uh, I, think, I think the whole area is, uh, with, with the certain regional superpowers right now acting, I think in this dark period that we're in, Uh, The sad part that hurts me that pains me the most is because I identify as an American Mm -hmm. as I see a huge amount of distrust That was the result of that pivot Mm -hmm. and that's in the area Mm -hmm. You know the the Kurds had fought with with the US for a very long time and they were left to the dogs just overnight, you know what they did in Afghanistan was I, I think i'm sorry i'm sorry i have to say this this way but i think america has to understand that american culture functions well in america but when it comes to countries like afghanistan or saudi arabia they have their culture and they have their way of thinking and when you want to try and influence them you gotta understand their perspective as well Mm -hmm. you can't come with a you know with a gung-ho type of attitude And, and sadly the amount of treasure and blood that was spent from, from, you know, comrades of yours and of mine in this part of the world from U.S. soldiers is so high, and we have nothing to show for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at what we left behind in Iraq. Look at what we left behind in Afghanistan. I mean, and that's so sad when you think about the amount of blood and the amount of treasure that was spent. Is this really what America is about? I mean, it's not. And sadly, um, i think there needs to be again a correction and 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 the the, you know we we learned this together you and i you got to learn from your past mistakes so you don't do them in the future adapt and move forward and the sad thing is when it comes to american foreign policy in the region it's like the repeat of the same thing over and over and over again instead of just you know learning from past mistakes mm-hmm. what's happening in, in 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 israel and occupied palestine is close to being something that's considered you know to be not human i mean it's it's sad what, what what's happening with the palestinians uh, there needs to be a two-state solution there needs to be a two-state solution you can't come and just you know erase uh, and and uh, America can't come and all of a sudden be super interested, and the next night just think of it as a nightmare that was past, and there's nothing there. You know, Iraq was one of the greatest Arab countries in the '70s and '60s. Most of their universities were publishing articles on culture, on uh, on art, on on science, on medicine. Today, it's a it's a, it's a wasteland. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, people are dying like. Like, you know, mosquitoes and, you know, America got disinterested and left. it, And then they wonder why Iran gets involved and why other people. But there have, I think there needs to be a, a, a better U.S. policy to the region. Um, now, when you tell me, do I have a positive outlook? Again, you have to understand, Bob, this is my wishful thinking. It's mm-hmm. like me asking you to think. The, the Tennessee football team is going gonna, is gonna to make it to the, to the finals next year, right? I yeah. mean, your heart, your heart is for it, right? Yes. Whether, whether I'm able to, to disassociate my brain from my heart, mm-hmm. I think is a, is a difficult thing. We have lots of friends, you and I, that have completely lost interest in this area and moved back to the States and, and, uh, and decided to make their future there because they just got disheartened by mm-hmm. the disappointments that are happening. But again, like you said, if we don't provide the leadership, we don't put our feet on the ground and lead by example, then what do we expect? We can't criticize it if we're not going to try our best to make a change. And I think we can make a change. The, the, the Lebanese people are an amazing people. You, it's, it's safer to walk in downtown Beirut or downtown Tripoli today with any kind of watch on your hand than to walk in London or Paris or any or New York, where you're going to get mugged and knifed for your knife, for your watch. You have a flat tire on any street in, in Lebanon, 20 cars, although they're all poor, and they're all impoverished, they will stop and help you change your tire and not even ask you for a dollar because they have that sense of, of obligation and citizenship where they want to help somebody that's in need. So there is still a glimmer of hope on the Lebanese citizenship. Uh, in, in Lebanese culture, Lebanese people, Lebanese identity. The question is, how can we get rid of these rulers that have been ruling us for four, 500 years? <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not the same person, it's the same method of rule. It's the, you know, we got rid of the families in the 90s, and all of a sudden we got a whole new leadership. But sadly, they use the same system of, of, you know, feudal warlords mm-hmm. to divide and conquer and, and rule us. And uh, time will come, it'll be bloody. I can guarantee you that, mm. but it, it'll come. Time for it will come. And after that, the Phoenix, you know, yeah. Lebanon's known as the Phoenix. That's the ruler of the Emirates of Dubai. Mm. Who do you fear the most? And he said the only person, the only country they fear the most is the Phoenix when it awakens from its sleep. We're referring to Lebanon as being the Phoenix and that we're currently out of, out of, uh, out of, out of sight and out of mind because we're too busy with our, with our you know, idiotic differences Mm -hmm. and um, again i need to reiterate the similarities and the parallelism although in lebanon it's based on religion in america it's being based on gender and different things that's a road that will only lead to where we have reached in lebanon today we need to go beyond that and think of ourselves as a as one person as one nation and, and, and move forward. And I hope to God that America doesn't go down that road because, you know, I want to retire back home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> go back to the States.
0: Where, where, where do you call home when you're back in the States?
1: Uh, anywhere. Anywhere. Just... would be my favorite. <laughs> Montana would be my, 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 you know, my El Dorado. Yeah. Uh, Montana for me is, 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 is a sweet spot. But anywhere in the States, you know, freedom is such a beautiful thing. And with all due respect, a lot of you take it very lightly. Mm-hmm. The freedom of speech and the freedom of having your own opinion irrelevant of who you are is so important. Mm-hmm. That's a luxury you, you, you have in the States. I have as an American citizen when I'm back in the States as well. But, I mean, that's open to all people in America. And sadly, I see that
0: eroding. Well, you, you highlight... Um... There's so many things there that you, you said that I agree with and applaud you for your insight on and um, the protect, taking our freedoms for granted. We do do that. And we're so blessed. And I think so many Americans forget how blessed they really are. And um, it, if you don't protect these freedoms and stand up for these freedoms and fight for these freedoms, they, they can be lost. A freedom is not guaranteed. You know, it's, it's got to be fought for and won every single day. And there's a natural, in, in the course of human history, I think there's this natural decline that happens to civilizations and free societies that if you're not careful, um, you can revert back to some pretty ugly things. And so it, it requires great leadership, uh, honest dialogue, transparency, and hopefully, you know, there's, time to continue to make changes in the united states in the in the right direction very prayerful that uh there will be uh the phoenix rising as you've said and the diaspora the lebanese diaspora will, will be able to come home and be able to rebuild a, a, a glorious and flourishing uh, country there in your homeland but you you highlight that it's it's important for us to learn from our mistakes and there was a moment ago you're talking about you know the, the the issues that happened in iraq and then uh, the the, the Disastrous withdrawal that we had from Afghanistan, and just within the last few weeks, we've been having testimony on Capitol Hill, and it's been heartbreaking to hear stories uh, of how that transpired. And hopefully, there's some learning and accountability. I think there's people who need to be held accountable for uh, things that happened. Um, I'm curious, you uh, as a medical professional, uh, the the whole COVID pandemic. Had to have been an environment where I mean, there's there was so little that we knew at the beginning of it. We know so much more now, uh, as uh, now that we're on the tail end of it. Uh, do you feel that there are? Or what are the learning experiences that you've had? You know, how do you feel that we, as a global population, are better prepared, or are we making changes for future pandemics? How would our how will our response be similar or different? Is there Anything interesting that you feel like we've learned you know coming through this and changes that we've made for the better uh,
1: i could I could talk for hours about this, but I think the the, the highlight would be we don't value our caregivers, mm-hmm. nurses, we don't value them as much as we should. you know they're they're at the bottom, if not the third quartile at the bottom of of, of where what they should be making. Mm-hmm. I think nurses should be treated as heroes much more and Valued much more than what we do either in lebanon or in the west uh, i think nurses are, are are not given their their right place in society whether it comes to um, you know prestige or whether it comes to income and i think we don't you know encourage uh, enough our kids to do that it's such a noble you know um job to give i mean your life is dependent on a nurse. Uh, with all due respect to doctors, my dad was a doctor, and, and uh, the doctor sees the patient for a quarter of an hour a day. It's the nurse that takes care of you when you're sick. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the, if, you, if you have a trench, and, you know, that food soldier that's in that trench, that's, that's your line of defense. And I think the pandemic should have taught us that we should value nurses and give them much more uh, place in our society on all levels, whether they be um, financial or social or you know we th- 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 I just don't know how to say this mm-hmm. you know these are these are the Florence nightingales. I mean mm-hmm. these are the, the the God forbidden for me saying this, but these are the gods that save your lives mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. and and you know we treat them with such uh, impunity in the state we don't give them enough credit mm-hmm. and I think our societies should do a hell of a job in in giving them much more of a place. Sorry, I'm I'm repeating. There are lots of other things that we learn um, about about the virus from the virus as well. Uh, We should change the way we build hospitals. We should uh, have a lot more primary health clinics. We should have much more education with uh, people. Uh, to understand uh, medicine and and, and not to take it so lightly, mm-hmm. uh, education is extremely important. I think socially, we should explain to schools and teachers and, and and students how to comport themselves, how to how to deal with each other and and respect each other much more in order to avoid the spreading of mm-hmm. of all these uh, viruses and diseases. Um, then again, uh, I could talk for hours, but I think that would summarize it for me.
0: Um, well, I, know, I know we're coming up uh, on the end of our time here. I want to be respectful of your time, and I've got a busy schedule ahead of you. Um, well, actually, you're kind of you're closing out your day, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. You're uh, quite a bit a- ahead of us here in the United States. Um, I, I would like to get your insight on. You know, I've been fascinated with the amount of. Time and resources you have personally put into your continued education. I mean, you've got an incredible um, educational background already, but a- as a member in the YPO community, you've you know not only have you just recently, I was honored to be there and, and watch you graduate the, the the Harvard Business School Executive Program. Uh, you're a graduate of their uh, OPM, the Owner President Man uh, program, I believe class of forty nine. Um, yeah, and I've, i know that you participate in advanced educational seminars uh, all around the world. And why do you why do you find the need to participate? And you know, um, for for those people who might be listening, and you know, lifelong learning is not something that they're passionate about. they're they're continuing. I'd love for them to be inspired and hear some of your reasoning on why you're plugging in and continuing to learn and grow the way that you do.
1: Uh, I come from a school of thought. First of all, Bob's being very modest. He is by far also one of the, one of the most uh, you know, dedicated self-education people that I know. I think he does perhaps more than me in, 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 in developing and educating himself. Uh, I, I come from a school of thought that says, uh, you're your worst enemy. I, I think uh, the worst enemy uh, for, for uh, a human being is himself. And I think it's extremely important to keep up to date with what has been in you know, at the best schools, again, you know, Stanford, Harvard, London Business School, LSE. YPO has been a great uh, vehicle to giving us access to all these uh, superb educational platforms. And I think uh, for years. For you to continue on developing yourself is for you to continue on bettering yourself as a human being. There's no such thing as a person that knows everything. There's a person that I I come again from a school of thought that I think I know nothing and I need to keep on learning in order to become a better human being. I mean, 10 years ago, who would have heard of empathy? Not many people would have heard of empathy. We had a great professor, you and I, that taught us how to be thankful to the people you love the most. uh, professor gosh you remember that class when we went in and he said you're all ceos and you're all kpi everything in your life in your business but none of you kpi your lives he told us that you know an average male lives till 77 an average female lives till 83 and he calculated how many he has left and he put it up on the dashboard and he says why don't you kpi what you have left uh, i think education makes you a better human being altogether um Your loved ones are usually the people that you love the most, and in my case, are the hardest on. And I think education is is like an alarm that sort of reminds me day in and day out that maybe we should give much more effort to our loved ones, our family, our wife, our kids, our brothers and sisters. And maybe we struggle with that. Because uh, I'm speaking for myself, I say we in a, in a in a broad sense. I struggle with that the most, and when I go to do the education, it's sort of a reminder that that you know we have to be better human beings for ourselves and for our loved ones. And it brings me back; it anchors me back to understand that no matter how successful you are. Uh, You're still got to have your feet on the ground and success is not measured by wealth, but by uh, accomplishments, but by it's measured by the relationships that you have. I think it was a Harvard study that went over 75 years that several professors did Mm -hmm. and found that human beings are better with the relationships they have. And, you know, education is, is imperative in that sense. And look at the relationships that you and I have, Bob, with the many people that we've been to school with. Uh-huh. That those are bonds that I think, at our age, to create today would be very difficult to have. Yeah. And uh, and I can definitely say that I'm a much better human being because of what I learned from Bob Dickey and 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 what I've shared with Bob Dickey, and that for me is, is priceless.
0: Oh well, it's. Thank you for those kind words. I feel uh, the mutual r- respect and admiration for you and, and many of the classmates that we've had on this pod and uh, plan on having it in the future. It's uh, one of those uh, for people who have not had it or experienced it. When you have a, a a kindred bond with a group of people from around the world, where you can have this, you know, uh, to use the American term, a melting pot of various ideas and perspectives and insights, just it's it's so rewarding to get to get together, be able to talk, um, learn from each other, uh, and also do life with each other, right? Encourage each other. And uh I, I've absolutely loved being able to to do life with you and Adam and others over over the years and the the relationships and as you said, the, the bonds and friendships that we form uh really is I think I, I was watching a I'm sorry, not watching, but reading a uh a, one of those studies that you were talking about in terms of happiness and one of the the things that they talked about as you get older your happiness is also determined by uh in large part the friendships that you have and you get fewer and fewer of them as you i think you as you grow older um and so it's you know you, you've been a blessing in my life so i want to say thank you
1: thank you thank you bob uh, you know uh, you taught me that that uh, in life you own your story and it's the way you write it is is, is super important and if you don't see yourself in a good light then how do you expect others to see you in good light? And 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 your your diligence and your and and your perseverance is, has taught me a lot. And and I think that's that's something you don't be, you don't learn from texts mm-hmm. and from professors. You learn from actually rubbing shoulders. And and that's also a big part of why I yearn for that for that education.
0: Oh, well, we've we've talked an awful lot about it uh, today, in, in terms of just the 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 nuance and the various shades of gray of what's going on in the world around us that the headlines cannot encapsulate an issue uh, or uh, something that's going on you got to if you really want to understand it you got to dig deeper you have to you know ask questions you've got to be inquisitive uh, and being able to speak with people who have subject matter expertise who are who are living there uh, gives you so much more uh, wisdom and context of what's going on in the world around us so I'm hopeful that you know, people in this podcast will be doing that uh, with folks in their life, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, give context of what you see, what you're experiencing on the ground. And we didn't even scratch the surface of you know, the various things that we could have talked about, about the Middle East, about Lebanon. But there's you know, so much wealth of information uh, that you've been able to share today. One of the uh, you know, final two questions that I ask a lot of our guests is, you know, it, what are some of the books maybe that you've read within the last year that have been impactful for you or you found really helpful or enjoyable? Do you have any uh, great recommendations, um, of books for listeners?
1: Yeah, I've been reading quite a bit, but the book that I keep going back to is outliers. Uh, it's a book written by Malcolm Gladwell. And I think the problem with alpha leaders is that we work a lot on our flair and our, on our, you know, instinct, uh, with, with time and experience you develop the sixth sense of, of of understanding things and he goes into the science of it and and it's, it's a book that i'm reading lately that that sort of uh, also sort of grounds me and says you know there's a there's a very interesting uh, science behind this and it's true we should count on your flair and on your sixth sense but be careful because when you do that five percent or four percent mistakes and your flair is wrong the mistake is huge. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's, that's something I've been reading. And I've been reading a lot from a professor that we had together, Ranjay Gulati, mm. who, who speaks about the VUCA um, management style and how to create scrums and adaptability. Especially in a country where you have no electricity, no finance, Mm -hmm. no no customs, no, we've turned into smugglers. We're basically smuggling life-saving drugs to keep patients alive. Lately, Mm -hmm. so uh, that's also been go-to his his teachings and uh, have been a go-to lately. And and there remains the great Boris Mm Roysberg, which you know uh, comes out with his uh, you know every couple of months comes out with an article on, on on. uh, HR and, and culture, mm-hmm. and for me, uh, you know, sad to say this in this terms, but it's biblical for me. Everything mm-hmm. that Boris sort of brings down is, is, is biblical. And lately, he's been, you know, writing a lot about relationships between fathers and daughters, and and uh, and passing on the torch, and also on whether do we need to have all these college graduates. Uh, running these key positions. If not, why not look at the technical uh, aspect and, and look at developing people? I mean, he said, coming back to what you said earlier, he says, do you want a Harvard graduate flying the plane or do you want a licensed pilot flying the plane? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, you know, so that that's also, he just came out with an article that's superb. And uh, one of the podcasts that I go to, uh, two of the podcasts that I go to is... Bob Dickey's podcast is one of them, and the other one is a, is a podcast called After Hours that has Professor Mahir Desai and and Young Mi Moon. Uh, often the professors that we had at Harvard, mm-hmm. they have a weekly podcast, and I think that's been you know a small piece of heaven in this whirlwind of a place we live. Yeah. To listen to your podcast and their podcasts have been amazing.
0: I absolutely love their podcast. It's so, it's so rich and full full of great content and. I know the article that you're talking about with uh, Boris Groisberg, uh, one of our professors and uh, really gets into the, the credential credentialism um, that we have and that uh, I, I've found his insights so important, especially as you have, you know higher education costs just continuing to, you know, rise so much faster than inflation, and that there's, you know, we don't want to price out great people. In the economy who have incredible skill sets may they may not have a four-year degree but they've they've gone through different other uh, you know training skills and um and trades and so forth and so i, I found that uh, article extremely fascinating um but boy great great recommendations there i lo- love that book outliers I, I have it i've read it and i'm gonna i'll go back and review it again um before I get to the final question, I just want to ask you as, you: as you were kind of talking about some of the things that you're navigating there, you know, are are there? How have your leadership? Um, how how has your leadership style maybe changed, or what are you learning about leadership as you're leading in such a uh, challenging environment? I know there's a, there's a lot of leaders that you know will listen to this podcast from around the world, and very few of them will have the type of challenging environment where you're trying to lead. In, and I'm just curious if you've got words of wisdom or things that you've learned about leadership over the last you know, couple of years.
1: A couple of nuggets. One of the nuggets is that you have to accept that certain people will lead and not have this obsessive uh, culture that you might have. They might be different. And you have to learn how to accept their differences. You know, there's a perhaps there's a measurable amount of uh, differences that you'd accept 10%, 15%. But you have to understand that people are not you. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know, and if they do make mistakes, it's okay. You know, you don't have to be this helicopter mom or this you know chicken that has to protect the the, the them from making mistakes. Because when they do their mistakes as as leaders, and they learn from them, it's mm-hmm. them having an open mindset is much more important than what is the mistake that they make. I mean, of course, given that the mistake is not fatal. Right. But you know. Uh, uh, you know, you have to learn how to accept people for, for what they do and how they do it. And, and, the, and the other thing that you have to really, um, that's, a, that's been a nugget, is that uh, you have to be really quick on your feet. Fastballs come at you in this part of the world. They come at you really quickly. And so you just need to be really, you know, uh, not stuck in your way of thinking. You have to be innovative. Uh, I think it was the test that they give you, where you have to draw four lines to make a square. Yet to think outside the box, and and you know you have to go outside the box to really find innovative mm-hmm. ways on, on on adaptability and and delivering uh, delivering um, results. And I think having accepting people do their own thing, and 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 taking a back seat and and having a lot of empathy you know bob it's Mm -hmm. so important that you know you don't criticize people for what they do uh you you have to let them explain why they did it Mm -hmm. and, and and understand where they're coming from and that they're different from you those those are the two things that i think have have taught us a lot don't stick to your to your thoughts and what you think is set in stone nothing is set in stone. We got to you know, adapt and adapt very quickly. And I think that's, that's, th- those are the two nuggets that I think we have from, from, from that, uh, from, from what we're living and going through at the moment.
0: A book that I'm reading currently that, that would validate everything that you're saying, and especially the, like the way we think in the, how we process information around us that I've found absolutely fascinating is Think Again by Adam Grant. I actually have it sitting here on my desk. I haven't even finished it. I'm about halfway through. But if you're interested about reading, I mean he's a uh he, Harvard undergrad, uh University of Michigan PhD now uh teaches at Wharton, but an absolutely incredible book. Uh, discussing about these paradigms, these frameworks that we have in our mind, that you know, and how they need to shift and change with you know new data that we may be getting, and I think that that's what what I think both you and I are seeing, and so many people are seeing, is that so much is changing in the world around us over the last couple of years, and that can be disconcerting and unsettling for many people. But if you have a framework to be able to bring in new data, change the way you think, I think it, may, it makes things you know, better. And it sounds like that's exactly what you have. You've, you've had to be adaptable. You've had to be resilient, um, uh, there and with all the things that you've had to, you know, overcome over the last few years. So my, my hat's off to you, but I think you'll really enjoy this book if you haven't read it already.
1: I, I already put it on my in um, and my Amazon shopping cart. Awesome. Thank you.
0: Well, final, final question. I, you, you've already had so many great uh, comments and words of encouragement for people who are listening, but if you had the ability, so you're you're a um, you know, an American citizen as well. If you had an Amer- if you had the ability, if President Joe Biden said, "Hey Richie, I want you to give a State of the Union address to the American people next week," and you were preparing your comments and you had the ability to to, to speak to the entire U.S. population, what would you say? Boy, <laughs> oh boy, you got me, you got me with that one.
1: <laughs> uh, oh, I would say. Uh, We got to take our learnings from the American Revolution. And, uh, you know, America was never as polarized as it was coming out of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And we need to get united. Uh, And I think that he's gone way too far to the left. And I think that we need to go back to the center and we need to make, you know, uh, us proud to be Americans and we need to be unified. I think it's sickening to see how how we've split into two different, you know, categories. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think America has got to come back to being what it used to be. And I think with all due respect, Abraham Lincoln did an amazing job. He wrote a book, I think, The Team of Rivals, it's called. There's a book written called The Team of Rivals Mm -hmm. that showed how he did that, how he unified the, the, you know, the red and the blue back under one banner, which is the, the flag, and I think we need to be able to do that. Sorry, I'm, I'm sure that's not, no. that's not a State of the Union address, but, I mean, you know, it's the, the theme, the arcing yeah. the arc theme would be, would be we got to come back and be united, uh, and we the people, you know, and for the people, and unalienable rights, and, mm-hmm. and enough of this cockamamie bullshit. Yeah. Excuse my language, Ben, uh, you know of of, of of being at these two poles where we're going at each other as if we're completely foreign and, mm-hmm. and, and can't bear to live with each other. We got to come back to having you know our white picket fences and the land of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's ridiculous that these students have to stay all their lives paying off their debts, mm-hmm. and it's ridiculous that these guys that identify as mushroom will cancel me because I forgot that they're identified as a mushroom today. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we gotta, we got to come back to the middle and, 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 you know, and be united. You know, you serve. Right. You, you, you are willing to spill blood. You are willing to lose your life and not see your wonderful wife and your wonderful kids for our freedom. Uh, and, and I think that's asking a lot of a person to do. And I think that, that today I would be much less willing to serve than I would have been 20 years ago uh, seeing the way the state of America is. And so I think we need to come back mm-hmm. to where, where we are, where we should
0: be. That's well, very well said, and I take your, those words to heart, and I, I'm sure all of our listeners do as well. Uh, America is worth fighting for. It's worth dying for. It's, um, we're more than geography and more than people. We're uh, a set of ideals, a set of principles that people from all over the world for many, many years have come to live here because of those ideals, because of those principles. Are we perfect? No. Uh, Do we have a lot of more progress that needs to be made? Yes. But uh, people like you, Richie, who have every opportunity to go any place on the planet to live and raise a family, uh, when you uh, left your homeland and decided you wanted to, you know, Uh, Become a citizen someplace else. You chose America, and you have dual citizenship, but you are American at heart. And uh, your perspective, your insights, um, your warnings—you've given us some warning about, hey, this is what I've seen happen in other locations. We don't want this to happen in the United States. I think people need to listen, take it to heart, and then do just like you've done. You're you're a leader that leads by example, boots on the ground, um, and you could put yourself in a place where it was um, v- very peaceful, very serene, uh, anywhere in the world, but you've chosen to go back to your home country because you care for and love the people and you want to make it a better place. And so uh, as a friend, I was just say, I respect you. I've watched you as a, as a father. I've watched you as a business leader. I know what you're doing there in country to make the world a better place. And I, I greatly appreciate you and respect you. And I, Uh, So thank you for your time and your words of wisdom and encouragement this afternoon.
1: Thank you, Bob. And, you know, as we say all the way, you know, thank you. And I look forward to, uh, you know, sharing hot dogs and burgers on the 4th of July with you. (laughs) uh, All the love and the best to the family. You have a wonderful wife and wonderful kids. And thank you so much for the opportunity today. And I'm sorry if I had, you know, babbled way off left, right and center. But, you know, we got we to gotta go back home. Please keep home safe.
0: Certainly will. I love you, my friend.
1: Love you, my brother. Take care. Take Thank care. you so much.
0: Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by my daughter, Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to our guest, Richie Heichel, for taking time to be with us. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite pods. If you like this show, please share it with a friend and give us a review. That is always appreciated. Thank you for spending time with us today. And we look forward to spending time with you once again next week.